Welcome to Wolfpack Career Chats from NC State University's Career Development Center, the only podcast dedicated to providing NC State students with current, relevant, and thought-provoking ideas that will challenge you to think about your future. Whether you want to know more about what hiring managers are really thinking, or you just need to hear an honest and encouraging story about overcoming obstacles to reach your goals, we've got you covered. Wolfpack Career Chats is just one of the many services we provide. Whether it's career fairs, on-campus interviews, co-op opportunities, or more, we are here for the pack. It's Marcy Bullock with Wolfpack Career Chats. Today we have a Wolfpack legend, Terry Gannon, on the phone from Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Terry. Great to be here. This this is going to be fun. This is going to be so much fun, and I'm sure everyone knows who you are, the man who needs no introduction, but I will share with our listeners the impressive list of accomplishments that you have. Of course, being on the 1983 Wolfpack Cardiac Team with Jimmy Valvano, we cannot wait to hear about that, and then going off and becoming an announcer with ESPN, NBC, so many sports that you have talked about. I find it absolutely amazing that you can talk about horse racing and figure skating and soccer and basketball. And we are going to get into a fun conversation today about your career journey because you studied history back in the 80s. Is that right? I did. I was a history major. I was going to be a coach and my dad was a high school basketball, baseball, football coach, and uh, loved history, social studies teacher, kind of started that love of history for me, and coaching. Um, And here I am in my mid-50s, and I've been broadcasting for the last 30 years, so funny how life turns out. Well, that is such an amazing story because shout out to the humanities majors on campus. I think that we never know where our career will lead. So um, how did history prepare you for the journey you've been on? And just tell us a little bit about your life and, and what's happened since you left college and are now an announcer. Just a little background. We'll start with the 83 championship team. I mean, so much. You talk about what you learned in college and what you learned at a young age, which applies to the rest of your life. The 83 championship team and playing for Jim Valvano taught me, number one, the the idea of why not? Why not? Somebody's got to do it. Uh, Eventually in my life, why not call figure skating? Somebody's got to do it. Why not call soccer? Why not call gymnastics at the Olympics? Uh, and, it, and it was winning a national championship. That's how Jim Valvano viewed life. And why not dream big, expect to win a national championship, defeat Michael Jordan, defeat Ralph Sampson, defeat Phi Slamma Jamma with two future Hall of Famers. And so that, I, I took that and it, really, it, it became real once I went out into the real world after I got done playing. Um, also, the idea of never giving up. And I know it sounds trite, but that was a team that was down and out so many times and should have lost this game, that game, another game, and just kept winning. And just kept winning because we believed if we got to the last couple of minutes of the basketball game and were in it, had a chance, we were going to figure out a way to win it. And in the years that followed as a broadcaster, 
it, it, it applied to me, you know, um, so many situations that you're in with that red light going on and you're under the gun and, and you're in front of millions of people and you're kind of doubting yourself. And there's something inside you that says, no, I'm going to get this done. Somehow I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to win. Um, and, and I think you can get yourself there. I, I don't think it's just something that happens. Uh, I, I think through the years, I, I kind of have figured out how to get myself there. When I started, I, and I was going to coach, that's what I planned on doing, and broadcasting kind of fell into my lap. It was offered to me as an option. And it was that moment where you say, really, do I, do I take a chance at this? Do I take a risk here? Because this, this is pretty set up over here. My blueprint is set up. And I made that leap of faith. Uh, in part because Jim Valvano talked me into it. Why not? Go do it. Take a shot. You know, you know you have this. You know you can do it. Go take a shot at something. And I think whatever year it's in, whatever the circumstances we have, I, I think being willing to take a risk, make mistakes, and then come back from them are something that are going to apply no matter what you're doing, where you are. Oh, there's so much I want to dive into on that, Terry. So, so let's go back to the team because you said it was such a special team who believed that they could win every game. So you did free throw shooting, which to me sounds like you just talked about maybe, you know, making mistakes and things. The scariest thing to do in front of thousands of people, you, you can mess up and keep going after you don't succeed. I just want you to tell us a little bit about the pressure you were under and how you stayed cool because you were one of the top, uh, I'm going to say the top free throw shooter. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I guess so on the team. And I was a shooter. That's what I did. I, I mean, uh, whether it be in that year in 83 in the ACC, we had three-point line which as soon as I heard about that, I was back at home in Joliet, Illinois, in my backyard. My dad and I ran out and drew a line, right? Uh, 19 feet, nine inches around and practiced four or five hours a day just at three-pointers. Uh, sh shooting is one of those things that you've got to be willing to take the shot and take the big shot. Take a shot anytime with a game on the line. And a free throw is something that you, you are all alone there. It's just you. It's, uh, there's no defense, but it is just all about you with everybody watching. And the confidence that you build up is through repetition, through doing it over and over again. And then when you're in that situation, having that confidence to do it. Um, the other thing, a little bit of a tangent, but the other thing I, I really latched onto back in my college days as a player was mental imagery. And there's a book, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz that I read back then. And it keeps being put out, new editions all the time, uh, still applies. And every night when I put my head on the pillow, I would imagine that game the next day or that practice the next day as vividly as I could. And the more relaxed you are when you're imagining, the more real your mind thinks it is. I would go through those scenarios. Three minutes left. Do I take that 15-footer? I'm open. Yeah. Boom. You feel it go in. You hear it go in. Um, and it's something I still do in my job now. Tomorrow's a big day. I'm on the air with whatever it is, the, the Belmont Stakes or the Tour de France or a huge basketball game or golf event. I'll go through in my mind and try to envision what I'm going to do that next day. Um, and in part, that's the confidence. That's where the confidence 
comes from. Fantastic. I, that book sounds, sounds like something that our listeners should absolutely check out. This whole idea of visioning your success and seeing it and almost tricking your brain into believing that it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, because the only way confidence comes about is through experience, right? How can you be confident that you can succeed in this if you haven't been there and done that? And the whole idea is the difference in those situations. Everyone has been either in that situation you're going to face, in a job, in, in, in school, whatever it is, in sports, um, and succeeded and failed. In that moment, do you believe in this one or that one? And you can't just say, okay, I'm going to be confident. You, you have to build that up. And that's one of the ways that I did it and I continue to do it. So with, with that, like you said, sometimes you stumbled, sometimes you missed the shot. And I want to know what advice you have for students who were recording this in June 2020, and we were just talking about the pandemic and, and the tough time our country is in right now. So some people had expected something to happen that didn't, and that may be very analogous to missing a shot. What would you say to those students, maybe that just graduated and had a plan, a job was reneged upon from the employer? I don't have any great words of wisdom. All I can go by is what I've been through. And the, the most satisfying victories that I've had, whether it be in my career or as a player or whatever, are the ones when I came back from failing. And it, again, it, it might be cliche to say it, but if you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And that is just the truth. And, and I go back even in my college days, one of the things I learned that I applied, I think, certainly tried to, and it's worked out that way in my career, is I wish I were bolder at that time. I was bold as a shooter. I was willing to take that shot with the game on the line. But other aspects of my game, I wasn't as confident at, and so I kind of play it safe. Looking back, I kind of think, you know what? We go through this once, Our life. We get one shot at life. Maybe, who knows, but as I know, and what, even if I lose, I'm going to lose. I expect to lose. I expect to fail. I'm going to come back. And, and it's the only choice that we have is to come back from failure. So, I mean, no matter what you're starting, whatever career you're starting, you've got to expect those failures. If you expect them, they're going to happen. It, it's not such a jolt. You're, you come back. Now, this pandemic, the situation we're in right now is uncharted territory, and there is no blueprint for how to come back. But I know, I am confident we are, and, and most likely we're going to come back in a different way because we adapt. And that's the other thing I, I kind of learned early on when I started working is being open to adapting. I started as a basketball broadcaster, not with this goal of, okay, I'm going to get to the final four with a headset on one day and do this. I started saying, I want to be the best damn broadcaster I can be, wherever that takes me. I, I, and, and I want to be among the best out there. And so when the president of ABC Sports, who I had signed a contract with, calls me on a Monday and says, hey, you know what? I want you to do play-by-play on a college football game down in Atlanta Saturday on ABC. 
and you say, whoa, wait a minute, I'm a basketball announcer <laughs> and I'm a color analyst. I analyze, I'm not a play-by-play guy. And he said, oh, no, you'll be fine. You'll be good. So there's that split second where you either adapt and buy in and say, okay, let's do it. Or you go, you know what? A lot could go wrong here. I'm going to shy away. I don't think I should do this. And, and that's happened to me time and again, whether it be football, whether it be figure skating, same way. You get on the plane, go to Tokyo next week and call figure skating. Well, I know who Peggy Fleming is. That's about all I know. But okay, I'll <laughs> learn. By next Monday, I'll learn. Um, gymnastics, the Olympics, soccer, whatever. It, and, I, and I continually said yes and was open to adapting to a different avenue that opened up. And it has worked for me. And it's been brilliant for me. And it's allowed me to experience things that I never would have been able to do if I said, here's the road I'm going down. And I'm not going to deviate from this no matter what. And I think we, as a workforce, as a culture, as a, as a world now, it's across the world, are forced to adapt and think of new ways and new avenues. But I think we will. Yeah, and I think what you were just saying, so many people can relate to just feeling the imposter syndrome of, wait, someone's going to realize I don't know anything about figure skating or whatever it is the next job is right out of college. And to just be willing to take that risk, I think is great. Now, I want to go back to to that team that you talked about that believed that they could win. What was so special about that team and what was it like to have Jimmy Valvano as your mentor and coach? We had three leaders as players. We had Sidney Lowe, Derek Wittenberg, Thurl Bailey. One was the, the head, the mind of the team. One was the heart of the team. The other was the soul of the team. And they were seniors. They were leaders. So important to have leaders, people willing to step up. Um, there were times when Jim Valvano, first 20 minutes of practice, he wasn't there yet. Guess what? Those three seniors, they started practice. They ran practice. And we followed we bought in. Everybody bought in to a singular goal of winning, whether it be a national championship, an ACC championship, that those goals changed throughout the year. And then you had a coach who was the most unique person I, to this point, have ever been around in my life. He was the smartest. He was the most energetic, the most enthusiastic, the funniest and he told us that we were going to win a national championship. And every game that we were in, down the stretch, when it was close, he looked us in the eye and said, here's how we're going to win. Boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom. And you believe him because of that force of personality. And you did not want to let him down. And so we would get to that point in games, two minutes left. We're down four points. There'd be a timeout and you'd come, you'd sit down and you wouldn't think, oh man, we're, we're in trouble now. You would think, all right, what's he going to tell us? How are we going to figure out how to win this one? And, and you'd hear it and you'd say, okay, that's what we're going to do. And you'd go and you would expect to win. So we beat the team in Houston with Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler who eventually became Hall of Fame basketball players. I mean, it just we, in many ways, we had no business beating them that night in front of 50 million people for the national championship. But we never doubted we were going to beat them. 
And I think if somebody would have come to us the next morning and said, oh, wait, sorry, you didn't win a championship yet. Now you got to play the Boston Celtics on Saturday. <laughs> We'd have said, ah, okay, we'll figure out a way to <laughs> It, it, and, and there was a belief that was there within those players that you were not going to fail. And, and I, I don't know you can turn a switch and, and make all those things come together, but all of them were together with that team in 83. Just goosebumps hearing you talk about it and the, um, the mentality, like you said, the psychology. It's, I mean, obviously you practice a lot, like you said, taking shots. It wasn't just like all up in your mind, but that combination. So this, this new job you have now that you never imagined when you thought you'd be a coach majoring in history as an announcer, you have to interface with so many different people. And, and that's one of the top skills that we hear our employers seeking as a competency from a college graduate is communication. How do you do that? And what, what is your secret to being able to make these connections maybe with all these diverse people? I think it goes, for me at least, to my history degree and my history background. I'm interested in people and what they do how they affect the world on a daily basis, what will be said and written about them, what will be remembered about them. And so I'm interested when I have Tiger Woods sitting next to me in the booth and I'm going to interview him. I'm interested when I have the CEO of some major company sitting next to me who is sponsoring the golf tournament that week. Uh, I'm interested in Le what LeBron is going to say or what he's going to do. And, and I, also try to remind myself of that before every broadcast is what a, not only what a great opportunity I have to be doing this, but how exciting this is. I'm going to be able to call a contest in which there is no script. One of the few shows on TV in which there is no script. I don't know how it's going to end up. Nobody does. And I'm going to experience this along with the viewer sitting at home as we watch, you know, North Carolina play NC State, as we watch the Knicks play the Bulls or Ohio State play Michigan in football, whatever it is. Um, and it, 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 it's an excitement that I hope comes across on camera, but it's authentic. It's, it's I'm generally excited to see what these people are about to do or eventually what they're about to say. Yeah, you can't fake that. that. That whole notion of it being so authentic from you, we can feel that when we're watching the game and we're listening to it. And it also goes beyond that, and not just in what I do. I think it applies to whatever you're doing, too. I mean, just an interest in people, who they are, what they do. So even if it's a boring meeting somewhere or this dinner you have to go to for your job, uh, which I have to go to some of those as well, um, you know, in my head, ahead of time, I'm thinking, okay, let's see what we can, let's see who we can meet tonight that is going to be interesting. We've got an interesting story to tell, interesting background, whatever. I, I try to do that no matter what setting I'm in. Yeah. And, and when you're doing that, it helps, I think, to connect to the viewers. And like you said, in any job you have, life is about making connections with other humans. I, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, it, it can't be overstated. Um, no matter what you do, be the person other people want to be around. Um, I've seen it work both ways in, in what I do. 
I mean, I've seen brilliant researchers and production assistants not progress because they're not the person people want to be around. They've got the knowledge. They've done the work. And, and right or wrong, that's what holds them back. And I've seen the flip side too. Someone who may not quite have what this person has, but because people want to be around that person, they progress. It's reality. Yeah, it is such a reality. So thinking about the, um, the idea of success in whatever a student might envision for themselves. You've talked to so many athletes, and of course, we just see it through the TV. Um, does anyone stand out to you as being successful in your own definition, just has it all together? And, and why is that person standing out in your mind? In my, in my business? Yes. In what I do? or Exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, like a talk, famous I, athlete that you've interviewed that you were like, whoa, that person just really impressed me. Oh, as an athlete or someone that I've interviewed? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are many of them. But like right now, the, the person who comes to mind is Rory McIlroy, professional golfer from Northern Ireland um, who, who just gets it and is interested in the world and the world beyond his sport. I mean, here's, a, here's an athlete who you look at his experiences. He grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and has all of that background that he's dealt, dealt with um, and still does in, in many ways, and it's not entirely over in that part of the world. Uh, we were just there for the Open Championship this past summer. Um, but now, as a highly successful athlete, as a mega rich person, if you will, all the money he's made on and off the golf course and can do anything and choose to retreat if he wants uh, behind his compound walls, you know, when he's not actually playing golf, he chooses not to. And he, he is, he constantly interests me when I listen to him speak or interview him or watch him he talks about all the books he's reading right now. And he's always got a number of books, whether it be self-help books or just thinking books, but always books outside of sports or golf. Um, but he uses them. He talks about times he's on the 14th tee and he's coming off two straight bogeys. He's got to find some way now to turn it around and make a birdie on the next hole to be in it down the stretch. And he'll reflect on a certain book that he is reading right now and why that, that helps him. To me, that's fascinating. And, and he is, he's also been willing to speak out on cultural issues and issues of the day in a thoughtful way. You can disagree with him, but you listen to him and, and you learn and, and something clicks and you go, okay, I know where he's coming from. That makes some sense. Yes. And he is an amazing shape too, because I ride the Peloton and I've seen him <laughs> kicking, but I mean, I'm like, how can a golfer be in such good shape? Don't you just walk around all day? The modern golfer now is into looking good and feeling good. <laughs> kept, uh, you know, ESPN, the body issue and everything else. So they're, most of them are into, you still, so you got the old school guys who, you know, want to have a cigarette and a beer belly out there, but they're few and far between. Now to keep up in golf, you got to be kind of in shape. 
Wow, that's awesome. All right, so let's think about a life lesson that really stands out for you that you would like to share with our listeners that you think is maybe the most important life lesson that you have learned. You said you're in your mid-50s, so over the last few decades. Well, I mean, you can go to life lessons of having kids and how that changes your life, and it certainly does. And uh, the national championship game, the biggest day of my life until I had kids. And I thought when people say that, you know, I was like, ah, come on. Cause a lot of people have kids and it, no, it does because it, it immediately changes your life. But as a lesson, um, you know, coming out of high school, I was recruited, but I wasn't that blue chipper. I wasn't that five-star recruit that everybody had to have. I grew up a, in Joliet, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, a huge Notre Dame fan. My dad had season tickets to the football games. We were at every game because he was a coach. We knew some of the players that led to knowing more players. I was in the locker room after every game. I said a prayer every night from the time I was five years old until I was 18 years old that I would get to go to Notre Dame and play basketball. They recruited me. Bigger Phelps recruited me. Uh, in the end, it came down to me and this other kid, and he took this other kid. And you talk about being heartbroken and having your dreams since you were, you can remember, uh, broken in one night. Enter Jim Valvano, enter the recruiting process from NC State. Here I am going down. I had never been south of Comiskey Park in Chicago, let alone uh, coming down to, to Raleigh, North Carolina. And this other place turned out to be the place that has shaped the rest of my life and where things happened to me, which I could have never envisioned. I just wanted to play college basketball and, and be on TV and, and be somebody, you know, and here I am as a part of a national championship team playing for this unbelievable person, Jim Falvano with these teammates. And, and now looking back on it in 2020 to be a part of a team that's remembered in a championship game that's remembered um, you talk about a life lesson of serendipity or whatever you want to call it, S trying like hell for this and working your butt off for this and it doesn't happen and you fail. And then because you did all this to prepare and, and make it, something over here happens, which is even better than you even envisioned. Serendipity has kind of shaped the rest of my life too, to be honest with you. And, wh and why... I was willing in, in broadcasting to go, oh, okay, I, I, I'll go over here and do beach volleyball. I'll call that. Sure, because you never know when this might turn out to be even better than this. Fantastic. And, and that all came from a rejection. Like you said, right. you had hoped that you'd get picked by this Notre Dame coach. And um, one of our recent graduates, um, Avi Agarwal, in episode 54, talks about so many rejections that she has faced. And she's only a few years out of college, but how she's bounced back from each one. So I hope people will go back and listen to that because we've all had rejection and you never know what's around the corner. I know last time I got a rejection, I wrote myself a letter before it happened to say what I wanted to remember about myself if I didn't get picked. That's good. I like that. That's good advice because it's, it's going to happen. I mean, that, that you, you have to know it's going to happen. And it's even tougher, I think, for this generation now because of social media. Um, it's something that everybody knows about. Um, 
that you're, then you got to deal with that aspect of it, um, which back then I didn't. I certainly do in my job now. Um, and hopefully, I think, um, every, every negative review or every, every bad thing someone says about you, you're a person. It still hurts on some level. But you get to the point where you listen to the ones that are significant to, from people who you respect and you are able to push the other ones over here and get by it. So Terry, let's talk about wolf pack traditions. What was your favorite tradition when you were a student at NC State? Unfortunately, it doesn't exist now because they don't play basketball on campus now at Reynolds Coliseum, they're off campus. But my, I'll give you two. My, my favorite tradition was students sleeping out in tents around Reynolds Coliseum for tickets to get, to get into that next night's game. And, you know, everything that happens down the road at Duke, it's gotten all the publicity, Krzyzewskiville and everything, and that's great. But guess what? We did it in Raleigh before. <laughs> we were doing it back then in the early 80s and even before that. Right. Um, so to be a part of that, you just, you, you just felt like you were supported by – we, we didn't shy away. I mean, it wasn't like we were trying to stay away from anything. We, we jumped right in. We, as players, we wanted to be a part of that. We would go out there with them and hang out. You know, and to think back on that, those, those were pretty special. Uh, being a part of a student body that was, yeah, I was going out there to play, but we were just all a part of this game tomorrow night against Carolina trying to beat Carolina and Michael Jordan. The second one was just walk, just going through the tunnel on campus. I used to look forward to that every day and spend a couple of me, uh, minutes every day reading whatever might be new, whatever might be up there that I didn't see before. Um, I used to love walking down the hill from the old college inn up top, which doesn't exist as such anymore on the campus and through the tunnel to class at the old Harrelson Hall. And yes, that no longer exists now too. Yeah, so many yeah. changes. So um, when you were, were thinking about classes that you took and faculty members and buildings you attended, was there anything that stood out there as um, a big memory for you? Hobbs and Riddle, two of my uh, history teachers, but professors who were big parts of my college experience. Will you say their names one more time? And Riddle. Yeah, Professor Riddle, Professor Hobbs. And uh, history. And we went, we also, I mean, God, I can remember, things come back to you in spurts. So I remember sitting in class when, when, when you hear something, there's a revelation and, and it hits you and it all kind of makes sense. So I remember going through that in a, in a civil rights history class that actually had Captain Jim Letherer. I don't know if you know who that is, but for anybody watching this, Look up Captain Jim Letherer, L-E-T-H-E-R-E-R. -E -E so during the championship run in 83, we had this kind of mascot latch onto us out west in Corvallis, Oregon, which was the site of our first round of the NCAA tournament. He was an amputee. He had one leg. He was on crutches. Older gentleman. Um, and it turns out homeless. He lived in his car. So he somehow made his way to the locker room out in Corvallis, and Jim Valvano welcomed him in, brought him in. He became our unofficial mascot. He was that there for those two games. He shows up 
in Utah for the next round of games. He's out at the pit in Albuquerque. Bring him in the locker room. He's one of us, Captain Jim. That was his nickname. Come, come back to Raleigh afterwards, big celebration here then. He's back in Raleigh. So I lived with uh, Mike Warren, teammate of mine, and, and a couple of the baseball players, Mike Pezzavento and Jim Tillman. We lived just off campus at that time. And Captain Jim would come stay with us some. And um, we're watching a documentary on Martin Luther King one night. And Captain Jim says, yeah, I marched with Dr. King, the civil rights movement. And, you know, guys are guys. We're like, yeah, you did not. You're making stuff up, blah, blah, blah. One thing, oh, yeah, I was there. And, yeah. Okay. A week later, I'm in class. I'm in a civil rights history class. And right there on the page is a picture of Jim Letherer marching alongside Martin Luther King. And there's a whole chapter on his contributions to the civil rights marches of the 1960s. And, um, you know, you come back that night and he's like, I told you, I told you. I was there. <laughs> but it's one of those things that hits you and it makes it real and you connect, even though it's, you know, some years later, it's, it's 20 years later, but you connect to that earlier time in a historical way. But um, it, 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 it was a special time. I loved history. I loved my professors. I loved, we went to Greece, you know, in, in Athens uh, as a team and had history there, history class there every day. And uh, it's, it's good memories. What fantastic memories. And I hope everyone will Google Jim Letherer because I was Googling it while you were telling me the story and very timely for today. So we're going to um, move into our last question. And that is we're getting into a time machine, Terry, into the year 2040. So I shared with you, you and I uh, were born the same year. So you can do the math to figure out how old you'll be. And you get to now give advice to the Terry Gannon of today. What would you say? All right, I mean, I'm, I'm going to think here. I'm not just yeah. going to think. Um, I, th I think I'm going to say one thing that I have, I think, done, but even more of it. Know, know something about everything. In other words, be interested in the world, in, in, in things that are going on, we are at a point where, and more and more of this is happening, if you click on a story, if, you, if you're reading on our, your tablet, your computer, your phone now, then things are programmed to be, all be streamlined that way. The old idea of reading a newspaper like this, okay, we may not want to hold that print anymore. However, what it forced you to do, back to serendipity, is to come across articles that you would not necessarily click on. And how we consume news today and the world are, are, are all clicks. And what you've clicked on feeds you more of the similar stuff. And I would say, concentrate, Terry, on keeping that broad base and, and reading that article that you wouldn't normally have read just based on that headline. Because I think no matter what you do, that is not only going to help, him, help you in what you're doing, but maybe open up another avenue over here. Terry Gannon, Wolfpack legend. Thank you for being <laughs> with us today. This is great. I really enjoy this. Bye.
Take care. Bye-bye. The NC State Career Development Center prepares and empowers students to identify and pursue their career goals. Stop by Pullen Hall to learn more. Thank you for listening to Wolfpack Career Chats, and we hope to see you around campus. Have a packtacular day.